Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this session on history, storytelling, and the collective imagination. Bruce Pascoe and I will introduce ourselves shortly, but we've just got a few, few preliminaries. I'd like to um, acknowledge the country itself and um, all, the, all the people upon it and all the, all the people who have always been upon it. We acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional owners of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Kaurna people living today. And I have a message uh, from the festival about, um, about COVID regulations. First of all, thank you very much for attending the festival, the Adelaide Writers' Week. Um, and we need to reinforce some key conditions of the COVID management plan approved by South Australian Health. Please maintain social distancing where possible and you're strongly encouraged uh, to wear masks and to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. Thank you very much. And just generally, uh, don't forget to go wild in the bookshop to support the authors. Uh, they love to find readers. We love to find readers. Um, and the uh, books from this session uh, can be bought from the quick sales counter and there'll be a book signing at the end of the session. Um, so Bruce and I are sharing the chairing and um, very pleased to do that and so we're going to introduce each other to kick us off. Um, so shall I start off by introducing you Bruce? Right now, off you go. Off you go, yeah, right. Um, so, well, Bruce hails from Muon country and is, as you know, I'm sure, author of Dark Emu, published in 2014. A book, about, a book about Aboriginal Australia uh, that, as the applause shows, has become a remarkable non-fiction bestseller. No other book dealing with Australia's history has sold so many copies. It's won prizes, inspired dance and documentary, distilled into school curricula, morphed into children's editions. Now, I'm a historian, and for the last five to six years, the book that people have most wanted to talk to me about has been Dark Emu. But Bruce was a, a notable and celebrated uh, writer on the Australian literary scene for many decades before uh, Dark Emu. So I think it's important for us to see his recent work as part of a, a long literary career. As a short story writer, as I'm sure you know, as, as a beloved champion and mentor of Australian authors, as an editor and publisher with Lynn Harwood of the magazine Australian Short Stories. I was an admirer of that magazine and a subscriber in the, in the 1980s. I really valued it highly. Um, Bruce is also a novelist. He's an author of memoirs, histories and essays, such as, for example, and you can pick it up in the bookshop, uh, Convincing Ground, Learning to Fall in Love with Your Country. That was published in 2007. And his collection of, of essays and uh, stories called Salt 
and there's his book Loving Country, which is, came out uh, two years ago. It's in the bookshop, and more recently his um, a collaboration with the historian Bill Gamage called Country. So you can gather from the titles that there's a lot of heart and passion and spice in Brewster's writing. So he's no flash in the pan, this guy. Uh, he's, had a, he's long been interested in Australian history, um, Australian national identity, and in the power of stories to bring the past and the present vibrantly together. So I, I see him as a storyteller in the old style, um, a performer, a preacher even, and he's found a lot of converts. So please welcome Bruce Pascoe. Thanks very much for that, Tom. It's um, very generous of you. And uh, thank you uh, to all the people who come here wanting to talk about books and uh, the history of this country stretching back 100,000 years. Um, Tom is, um, has, is a uh, professor at uh, ANU um, and has an extraordinary um, collection of publications um, from as diverse a range as you can think about, from Mawson to archaeology, and uh, it's a great contribution to Australian writing and thought, and that's what um, literary festivals are about, about thought, and um, thinking is a difficult art, and for those willing to cater for thought. Um, we have to thank Tom for all his, all his generous work and the generosity of that work I've directly experienced. And your latest essay is in Griffith Review. Um, and that is, when I read that um, just the other day, I, I was struck by how um, important it was to um, be generous and forensic at the same time and um, that's what that essay is. So I, I'm pretty sure uh, the latest Griffith review will be over in the, the book tent. It's and the, the, May, that the is, May edition that's in. Bruce, it's not quite out yet. Oh, <laughs> aren't we in May? It feels like May. Um, <laughs> But anyway, that's a, a, something that you can look forward to uh, in the future. Um, so th thanks for all that work, Tom, and thanks for sharing it with Australians. Uh, it does feel like a time when we can do with a, a lot of thoughtful responses uh, rather than saying, isn't it beautiful to be Australian? Yeah. Thank, thank you, in turn, Bruce, for your warm and generous words. I really appreciate that. Um, so we thought we'd begin, before we get into the general conversation, we each thought we'd um, say a few words, speak for a few minutes about our work. So, Bruce, why don't you kick us off? Well, I didn't... I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. That is what I do. Um, 
I've been doing it for a long time, uh, over 50 years, and uh, I got into writing history because it, it felt to me like no one in Australia was writing the history of my family. Um, and all those extended families in Australian Aboriginal life, that the histories were deflecting away from the truth of what had happened um, in Australia. And we're still deflecting. Um, you know, our Prime Minister is still saying, uh, saying sorry isn't the hardest thing, it's saying I forgive you. Um, it's an outrageous way of not making an apology at all. And, um, so I, I um, wrote a, a book about the contact history of Australia um, called Convincing Ground. And I, you know, I'm a great admirer of Henry Reynolds um, and all the work that he has done. That, incredibly um, hard work and at the time he was writing it incredibly unpopular uh, so I was I felt like I was writing on um, Henry's back and trying to tell a, a history both about how it felt to be a white person in those d days and the kind of motivations which would drive people and what it would feel like to be a black person in those days and the motivations that would drive the other side. Um, and one of the things that spurred it was um, listening to people talk about the Broken Arrow Cafe in Tasmania being the worst um, massacre in Australian history when it wasn't even the worst massacre on that site. Um, because Aboriginal people had been absolutely slaughtered in Tasmania. Uh, and it, it's a, we, we have not got to the grips with our country and its history. We are still shirking the issue. And, you know, Morrison's uh, comment the other day just shows you that you might say sorry, but then you withdraw it in the same action. Um, after convincing ground, I'd, I'd learnt so much about that contact period because um, I hadn't been getting any of that from my own family. Um, and I certainly didn't get it at school. And I went to university and, and graduated and I did hear one word of that at my school or my university. So I ended up writing Dark Emu because about the fact that I was reading about our people grinding grain into flour um, so, so long ago. Uh, the people harvesting Murnong, several different um, invaders in several different locations unknown to each other um, said uh, the women appeared like sheep on the plain, gathering sometimes grains, sometimes orchids, sometimes lilies and myrnong. And it just 
struck me that everything I read, like the, the big collections of grain, these people weren't um, gathering enough food for that night's meal. They were harvesting and storing. And I, I read a fantastic book by a fellow called Rupert Gerritsen called The Origins of Agriculture in Australia, or called Australia and the Origins of Agriculture. Um, and that was a, such a revelation, that book, and I, I based Dark EPU upon it. And um, Rupert should have got a lot more of the credit for his work. He had to publish it. He's in London. Um, and then he died. And he got none of the credit that was his due um, for talking about these things. And it is very hard to get away from the, the idea that the reason Australia doesn't want to uh, talk about Aboriginal achievement in the area of agriculture is because it talks so profoundly about sovereignty, occupation of the land. And that is going to be a hindrance to the intelligence of our children until it is cured. Thanks, thanks, Bruce. Well, I'm a historian because I'm intrigued by the powerful ways in which the past is in the present. And I love discovering and telling stories, um, especially true ones. And for a non-fiction writer, uh, the key question is, how do we know they're true? Especially as truth really is stranger than fiction. So an accompanying question is, how do we show they're true? For a historian, there's always at least two stories to tell. What we think happened and how we know what we think happened. And good histories, I think, tell those stories in tandem. They don't suppress the evidential story. They don't push it down below the line, you know, burying it in the footnotes. It's part of the drama. Sometimes it's the main drama. The historian needs not only to seek the real past, as far as that's possible, but also to make it believable. That is the art of history alongside the craft of history. It's a scholarly discipline that requires compassion and imagination. And I don't mean imagination in the sense of fantasising or making it up. I mean imagination in the sense of enlarging the surviving evidence with life, meaning and insight. So I realised that the best way to explore such a craft was not in an abstract way, but by observing how particular historians uh, construct a body of work out of a lifelong dialogue between past evidence and present experience. So in my book, um, The Art of Time Travel, Historians and Their Craft, I look at 14 historians at work. I look over their shoulders, as it were. Women and men chosen from across 80 years of history. I look over their shoulders and I find that they're writers, artists, as well as scholars, and they're also passionately engaged citizens. They begin their inquiries in a deeply felt present. 
But as time travellers, they have to forsake their own world for a period and then somehow find their way back in order to address with discernment their own society now. It's a perilous two-way journey. And when you return to the present, it's never the same as when you left it. Thus, I see history, great history, as a high-wire, gravity-defying act of balance and grace. So history, I'm happy to report, is also a craft that is completely collaborative and collegial. Every insight depends upon others. Although the act of writing itself is solitary, the craft of history is the work of the collective imagination. It's conversational and it's communal. Referencing and acknowledging aren't pedantic. They're respectful. They're civic-minded. They enact a commonwealth of knowledge. And so public debates, as Bruce has indicated, public debates about the past are best conducted in books and essays, in seminars and podcasts, and at writers' festivals, better there than in the opinion pages of the Murdoch papers. Here, under the trees, by the torrents, is, I think, the best parliament of the people. And because history is critical, it's collective and collegial, it's also self-correcting, although it can sometimes take a while. Scholarship sows the seeds of its own revolutions. It, it provides the tools of its own upending. At my primary school in the 1960s, they were still using a text that was published 50 years earlier, uh, Professor Ernest Scott's Short History of Australia, published in 1916, uh, which began, as he put it, it began with a blank space on the map and it finished with a new name on that map, Anzac, published in 1916, a year after Gallipoli. So the climax of the book was the colonists' national apotheosis on a beach on the other side of the world, in a war, a sacrifice in blood, that they could acknowledge in place of the one they so strenuously denied at home. Aboriginal Australians, the dispossessed owners of that blank space on the map, hardly got a mention in Scott's history, in which Australia was a footnote to empire. Even in the mid-20th century, Australia was seen as a new transplanted society with a short and derivative history, a planned, peaceful and successful offshoot of Imperial Britain. History and culture of stature, well, they came from abroad. Aboriginal peoples, because they were non-literate, non-urban and non-national, well, that's how it was seen, they could have no history and did not constitute a civilization. Thus, they were not citizens and could find no place in the national story. In 1959, the eminent historian John Lanoz depicted the history of Aboriginal peoples as a melancholy anthropological footnote. But in the half century that followed, Australians discovered that the new world was actually the old. 
and that the true nomads were the colonisers. The nation continent was rediscovered as a jigsaw of bioregional countries, which had so long been its condition. Australian history became as much about the ecological, social and technological disjunctions as it was seen to be about you know, the political and social continuities that Europeans had first celebrated it for. The first Australians, it turned out, were humanity's most adventurous sea voyages. And they'd arrived here tens of thousands of years ago. British colonisation was recognised as an invasion. And across the continent, there had been a war. An unfinished, undeclared war. White historians ventured uh, to the other side of the frontier. People like Henry Reynolds, as Bruce indicated. And black historians crossed the beach in the other direction becoming the custodians of white history as well as black because they stayed on country while the white nomads often moved away. Indigenous scholars studied the nation's unending frontier and the intense colonial revolution into which they had been thrown. So for me, for all of us, I think, this was the most astonishing shift in the historical consciousness, in the collective imagination in 20th century Australia. Now, instead of lamenting a, a, um, a melancholy anthropological footnote, I think um, we would say that there is no history of Australia that is not Indigenous, that does not feel the weight of ancient sovereignty, that does not carry the responsibility of continuing injustice. All those insights, with their compelling new narratives, have emerged since I was in primary school. Well, uh, Tom, I've um, left my notes behind the stage, um, and which are relevant to the question that I wanted to ask you. Um, in your new essay, uh, you talk about Alice Duncan Kemp. Um, uh, could you explain to people the importance of um, Alice, in your opinion, in terms of Australian... Uh, history writing. Thanks, Bruce. Yes, so the essay that Bruce uh, has had, has read in advance, is called But We Already Had a Treaty, uh, Malcolm Mukana, the Debney Peace. And it arises from work I've been doing with Mythico people uh, on their country in southwestern Queensland. It's some work I've been doing really for 20 years, but um, I'm delighted that now I can do it with. Indigenous owners on their land now that they got native title determination in 2015. And it really is, this is a, you know, native title has its problems, but this is a quiet revolution uh, that Australia is undergoing and uh, it really makes a difference to uh, all of us out there on Aboriginal lands, uh, including white landowners who are finding that it's great having people back on country. Um, and it's it's my, my role as a historian is to help as much as I can in, in researching and returning stories to country because, of course, the history of the Mythica is a history of displacement and dispossession, of, of violence, of removal. Um, everything that stops continuity, stops the measure of native title, you know. Uh, history uh, forces Aboriginal people into these situations, but they have clung on to country and now they're renewing 
country through research and collaborative research, cross-cultural, and I'm honoured to be a part of it. And um, my... Bruce mentioned Alice Duncan Kemp. That's why I got involved, because she was a white writer, born in 1901, a woman who grew up on Mythica country on a remote pastoral station, Murrubury, um, uh, near Windora on Cooper Creek. And um, Alice wrote uh, five books about her childhood, uh, which was when she was educated by her Mythica teachers. She was looked after, cared for, educated by Mythica people um, uh, at home, at night in the homestead, the white Duncan family would say grace and thank um, the, uh, they would thank the inspiring pioneers and the black saviours, the white, the white pioneers and the black saviours. They referred to their Mythica workers as the landlords. Of course there was exploitation, of course there was uh, loss but there was also, on this station, some respect and some genuine cross-cultural dialogue. It's, it's distilled in Alice Duncan Kemp's work. Uh, Bruce draws upon this work in his own work. Um, these sources are so crucial to us, and they're often disparaged sources, and Alice's work has certainly been disparaged over the years. It's difficult material to work with. It's, um, it's unreliable in some ways, but at the heart of it is a true memoir, and it's... I'm trying to make the case for taking it seriously. Mm. But she was a woman. Exactly. And yeah. so what right did she have to start writing? Um, and the fact that she also spoke the language of those people, you know, meant that she was unreliable. And that's what her fellow historians said, that she, because of her sex and because of her closeness to Aboriginal people, she was an unreliable source of information. Um, but how many uh, words did you calculate she'd written? Half a million. Half a million words. But in the Australian um, uh, biography of literature, um, the Australian uh, sages um, only from that country only refer to Barcroft Boak. And I've got a treat for you because I'm going to read a bit of good old Barcroft. A down, not going down, but a down grass-grown paths we strayed. The evening cowslips oped, not opened, oped. <laughs> Their yellow eyes to look at her, the lovesick lilies moped. Um, oped and moped. <laughs> you know, that's genius. We are, <laughs> we are at a, a, a literary festival, eh? Um, <laughs> With envy that she rather chose to take a creamy petalled rose and lean it against her ebon hair, not ebony, ebon, ebon hair, all in that garden fair. Now, uh, that's the best of Barcroft because he also wrote, Mark that red leader now, what a fine bleeder now. 1,200 at least if he weighs half a pound. He wrote a lot about cows um, and chasing them on horseback across stolen land. Now, the Australian literary canon remembers Barcroft Boat, never mentions Alice Duncan Kemp. It's a disgrace. But also, that literary canon never mentions any 
of those Aboriginal sages from the past. And, you know, as a, a country with so many great Aboriginal leaders and a country with so many great writers of um, both black and white, it's our responsibility to make sure that this debate goes long and deep into the Australian society um, because there's no other way for us to live together unless we understand the same story. And there are so many impediments to the truth. There's a, um, a book uh, about the um, massacres of Aboriginal people in Victoria. And look, it's, it's well written by a person of great integrity and great courage, and yet it doesn't mention half of them. And the reason is because there's no record. And there's no record because those who perpetrated those massacres didn't want to leave a record because uh, I think it was three white men had already been hung for killing Aboriginal people and that was the last time that punishment was meted out. Um, and the colony uh, decided that they would never, ever prosecute white people again for killing black people. And that is why um, information about massacres, sorry to spoil a lovely afternoon, but the reason those massacres weren't mentioned, didn't, the country refused to mention, was because this was stolen country. And you can't talk about that if, as a Christian country, you want to take possession of the land and, and tell your children that they deserve it. And the reason I um, mention that is not just to ruin an afternoon or become bleak or maudlin um, or to, you know, be poor fella me. Um, it's because, and down on the south coast where I live, the law, the Aboriginal law, L-O-R-E, is taken from a man who took that law from his grandfather and that man took it from his father who was the single survivor of a massacre, an undescribed massacre, um, on the Broad River River near Orbost and Marlow. And the reason why it's undescribed is because it's held only in Aboriginal memory. But so refined is that memory that people can tell you the names of those people who were killed, the 40 or more of those people who were killed. And that single boy survived and was taken into the house of the perpetrator. Imagine that boy's psychology as he grows up, uh, knowing what had happened to his people, old enough to know that, uh, growing up in the house of the perpetrator and wondering about his life um, and I'm going to 
a ceremony for Uncle Max Harrison on Saturday. Uncle Max Harrison is the great-grandson of that boy. And I was always curious to know how that boy, that survivor of the massacre, actually got his law. How could he handle it, handle it down to us if he was only eight years old when he, um, his, the rest of his family had been killed? But it's something that stuck with me for a decade or more. And um, that old man, uh, Uncle Max, he could read minds. And he said, I know what you're thinking. You want to know how he got his law. And he reeled off the names of the five men, one of whom came from Shepparton, one from Bambala, uh, a couple from Cabago. They stole up to that, that house, 350 kilometres away from where most of them lived, and took that boy away at night and gave him his law. They must have done that assiduously over a long period of time because he then passed it on um, to his son, who was Uncle Munns Hammond, and Uncle Munns passed it on to Uncle Max. Uncle Max passed it on. And tomorrow or Saturday, we celebrate his passing. This is such an incredible story that Australia ought to know it. We should be begging the authorities to let us hear this story. Like having a... Thank you, I appreciate it. Um, it's like showing your kids a book and saying, oh, you're going to love this book, and never reading it to them. And that's what we've got in this country. We've got an unopened book of things that are really important for us all. Um, and I'll tell you, Uncle Max had his critics, but when we went to do the first celebration of that, and that's a story in itself, when it, it took us 15 years to find the site of that massacre, uh, we, you know, there were people in the district who knew where it was and wouldn't tell us. Um, one good white man, and sometimes that's all it takes, um, decided he would not um, rest until he found out where it was. He did find out where it was, and uh, he, he told us we were able um, to go there. But Uncle Max then said, well, now we know who did this, we'll invite them to the celebration. And I, I, I raised my, my eyebrows and sucked in a breath because I thought they'll never come. They did. They came to the celebration of a massacre. And, um, um, you know, history's a very funny thing, Tom, as you know. Really peculiar thing, the way that wheel turns. But um, then I realised six months later that I had taught the brothers and sisters of the people who came uh, to that event. So I had taught the children of the, of the perpetrators of the massacre. 
And then those people turned around and made a beer called Dark Emu um, from Sailor's Grave Brewery. So there's this giant circle of circumstance going around and it's not finished. And, it, and, and while that book remains closed to all your children and your grandchildren, it's not finished. We're going to open that book. We're going to hurt each other. This isn't going to be pretty. This Truth and Reconciliation Committee, whatever it is, it's not, it's not going to be a picnic. We're not going to be all smiles and slaps on the back. It will be gruelling because the material in it is gruelling. Mm. But in, we are never going to understand each other. We'll never deserve to be here. Um, Bruce, uh, you're talking beautifully about um, about books and the passing on of knowledge and respecting hard-fought lineages. And when I read Dark Emu, I wish you had been able to acknowledge more of the half-century of scholarship that I spoke about earlier. Uh, you're, you're tough on historians, as, as am I. I, mean, I think it's, we should be tough on our historians. In fact, I think they, they welcome it. Um, it's a, it's a self-criticising discipline. But uh, you draw, as again I did, on your sort of primary school years and, and university, as you remember it, your teaching, but things have changed in our understanding of Australian history, our writing of Australian history in the last half century. And there, there are, I think, some lineages we should uh, celebrate there, uh, you know, going back really to our, our novelists, uh, people like Eleanor Dark, Catherine, Susanna Pritchard, um, Xavier Herbert, who really alerted us, if you like, to alerted white Australians the other side of the frontier with their sensibilities. Um, but also uh, scholars, um, um, W.E.H. Stanner uh, calling out the great Australian silence in the 1960s in his Boyer lectures. Bernard Smith in 1980 giving his magnificent Boyer lectures. What a great tradition they are. His called The Spectre of Truganini, a beautiful meditation, a tough meditation, which if you've not read, I really recommend. Um, the work of John Mulvaney, of archaeologists and anthropologists, um, Sylvia Hallam, Rhys Jones, Rhys Jones' insight in 1967 into fire stick farming, something that Bruce and I are both uh, the foundation of, of our work. That's, that's a long time ago, uh, that sort of insight. And, and there's great work that's been done since then. Uh, Bruce mentioned Henry Reynolds in 1981. Henry, Henry Reynolds' book, The Other Side of the Frontier, was published. And in the same year, it's sometimes forgotten that Judith Wright, our beloved poet, uh, wrote a history called The Cry for the Dead. It was a frontier history. The Cry for the Dead about the Wadja people in Queensland. And, and that came out the same year as Henry Reynolds. And they're both breakthrough books in terms of understanding the other side of the frontier and awakening Australians to um, this 
story, the major drama at the heart of the modern nation, the, the neglected, the oppressed story, the story that Eleanor Dark tried to tell in 1941. Um, and this work has been built on by great historians and writers and scholars, um, by the archaeologists right through that revolution in understanding the antiquity, black and white archaeologists, understanding just how ancient Australian civilization is, the revolution in understanding frontier warfare and what that what that comprises. Perhaps, you know, some say it should be, they should be called the homeland wars because that's what they were. Um, they were a fight for their country on, the, on their soil. And, and historians, black and white historians, people like Noel Pearson, Marcia Langton, uh, Grace Carskins, Heather Goodall, Peter Reed. You know, I could go on. There are so many. And I have to tell you, it, it's the most exciting historical revolution, historiographical revolution, I should say, that I've lived through, is, is watching that work grow. And it grows in the kind of communal, collegial, respectful way that I was describing earlier. And, and it's continuing in the 21st century. The challenge from uh, Keith Winshuttle's work 20 years ago was, was received, the challenge was um, responded to by historians taking Winshuttle's work into their classrooms, teaching it and discussing it, and it produced a whole new wave of frontier scholarship, as a result of which we now know grimly just how widespread, how violent the dispossession was, much more so than we knew 20 years ago. Uh, that's a whole, you know, two decades of magnificent new work by young historians that's come through. So what I'm saying, Bruce, is that um, I feel sometimes in your work that you want to turn your back on that revolution. Um, I don't understand why, because I think it's a great story. And, and you've, um, you've opened a portal You've touched the hearts of Australians in, the, in a way that few of us can do. And I want to urge you to use that portal to invite them in to what is, a, you know, a heritage of Australian scholarship, homegrown scholarship, that is something we should be really proud of. Well, I hope I'm always in, I'm inviting Australians in to the history of their own country uh, that is my intention. And um, I'm a fiction writer. Um, I went to school on King Island and Mornington. I didn't go to uh, a private school. I wasn't a terribly good student. Um, so a lot of what um, people at university accept as the common knowledge of Australian history um, isn't my knowledge. Um, I have read widely, but I have also read with intent. And my intention was to ask Australia to start talking. Now, some of the books that you mentioned that you um, wished I'd commented on more, um, some of them appear in such small numbers or as essays um, in university magazines that the rest of Australia have not read them. And, you know, I've had um, professors saying, well, if you had read this 
in a, you know, a document of the um, philosophical society of Borneo, or wherever it was, um, then you would know that this was known a long time ago. I don't care what was known a long time ago. I'm interested in what Australia knows now and what Australia uses uh, to register their vote. Um, and you mentioned Eleanor Dark, and I remember being mesmerised by Eleanor Dark as a teenager. Um, but have you read Eleanor recently? Um, it, it's actually a bit of a shock to go back and revisit those books. Um, yes, well, she was writing in 1941, in the late 1930s, and her book sold almost as many copies as Dark Emu. Not quite. Well, uh, <laughs> that, that is fantastic, because, you know, it's great literature, mm. but it, it, um, it does turn away from some pretty obvious facts about the frontier. Uh, the book I'm currently reading is Sylvia Hallam's uh, I think it's called Hearth and Home. Yep, Fire and Hearth. And um, Fire and Hearth. Um, and it was first published in 1971. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a really wonderful book. I, I recommend it to you. It's about Western Australia and uh, uh, the interaction between Europeans and Aboriginal people in Western Australia. But when, when I read it, I'm... I'm crying out for a more energetic statement. You know, in its time, 71, you know, a lot of these things have been written by women too. Um, um, You know, an act of raw courage. But even so, you know, I'm so mean-spirited, I'm expecting more and more. You know, I wanted Sylvia to say more, I wanted Eleanor to say more. Kevin Gilbert, the great poet, uh, when asked about why he did what he did, he said because a white man wouldn't do it. And in, in that age, and um, when Kilvin, uh, Kevin was writing about the same time as Sylvia um, and Eleanor, um, it was obvious because not too many white men were doing it. And you will have to forgive our impatience my sisters are down here, writers. You know, you have to forgive our impatience because we've been waiting for a long time. You know, we brought your fish as soon as you arrived because we knew you were hungry. We brought your water as soon as you arrived because we knew you were thirsty and we knew that you were humans. But those first British people didn't recognise us as humans. Some, some did, and um, we're grateful to them, and uh, Charles Sturt was one of those people. And I, I write about Charles Sturt a lot uh, on the back of what Rupert Gerritsen had written before. Um, but we can't wait too long in this country um, before the forgetting is complete. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to have um, ignored or underused some of those early writers. You know, Rhys Jones, I actually knew. Um, never met Sylvia, but respected her work. Um, would have loved to have met Alice Duncan Kemp. But I think of a woman like... Um, 
Heather Le Griffin, who wrote Campfires at the Cross. The most important thing she ever wrote appears in um, an, um, an end note. She wrote about going to the Melbourne Museum to look at the um, possum skin cloaks of Aboriginal people. And when she saw them, she burst into tears because as an historian, she had expected to see those cloaks crudely cobbled together. And in fact, the work had been done by a fine seamstress. She burst into tears because of her own prejudice. And we are running out of time and tears are no longer enough or excusable. Do not say sorry. Do something. And I'm, I'm sorry to have um, not given credence to so many people who have done great things in Australian scholarship. But when I wrote Dark Emu, I was furious about the scholars of Australia and the professors of Australia and the teachers of Australia and the politicians of Australia, who all through my education, the 12 or 14 years of it, whatever it was, uh, I told you I wasn't very good, it took me a while, um, never, never thought to mention that Aboriginal people had built houses, some of which could accommodate 50 or 70 people. How do we stay patient when we're denied that the information that would have made us proud and may have stopped our kids killing themselves if they had known. We're running out of bloody patience and I'm very sorry. I, I share that sense of urgency. Uh, one of the reasons that I drew attention to that body of work, though, is that it's relevant to our conversation in the sense that these are the scholars, black and white historians and archaeologists and anthropologists, who have, I think, over that half century, pioneered a sophisticated understanding of the distinctive ecosystem management of Aboriginal civilization. Now, we've got to address the issue of agriculture because this is the most controversial aspect of Dark Emu. Um, and you'll know, many of you, I think, that there's um, a new book out called Farmers or Hunter-Gatherers, uh, written by Peter Sutton and Karen Walsh. And I recommend it to all of you interested in Bruce's work. It's a respectful forensic critique and it um, brings back to the surface some of the... Uh, body of work that I'm talking about here. Um, and Bruce, I think, graciously welcomed uh, the book. And I think uh, the great thing about the book um, is that uh, it came out at a time when there seemed to be two possible arenas for the discussion about Dark Emu. One, sadly, seemed to be waged by the culture warriors in, um, in, in the Australian newspaper and so forth. Um, but the other area has opened up, and it is a scholarly debate, and we must welcome 
a scholarly debate about Bruce's work. This is, this is, as Bruce says, a subject we should be talking about. And my God, you've got us talking, Bruce. So, and I remember the epigraph at the start of Bruce's book, Convincing Ground, is this is not a history, it's an incitement. Now, I think I would say the same of Dark Emu. It's not a history, it's an incitement. And I, I like that. I like the, the fire in it. But uh, it's reasonable and I think proper for scholars to respond uh, in detailed ways about whether or not Aboriginal uh, civilization can be called agricultural. agricultural. I, I understand completely why uh, you've taken that argument, Bruce, because agriculture was uh, equated in the imperial mind with civilization, and so to deny agriculture to Aboriginal society was to deny civilization, and it was an instrument of oppression. But that 50 years of scholarship um, has taken us in a different direction. It says we don't need to measure Aboriginal civilization according to these old hat European imperial hierarchies, these, these outmoded social evolutionist stages of human society. Aboriginal peoples uh, over millennia uh, developed an entirely unique, sophisticated uh, uh, culture of environmental management. They were curators of the land and of nature in, in so many of the ways that Bruce has described. And that's something that Bruce shares absolutely with that body of work. They're all acknowledging and building on and a growing understanding of the depth and the sophistication of Aboriginal environmental uh, management. But why do we have to, Bruce, why do we have to revive outmoded hierarchies that make us... I think you're playing into the hands of, of the culture warriors because if we feel that Aboriginal people are somehow more... We can admire them more because they're farmers, um, we're turning our backs on a much more exciting understanding of a unique, a unique environmental custodianship. So why, why agriculture, Bruce? Well, um, I think um, many people uh, who hold that view, um, haven't read the book closely enough. You know, Philip Sutton, for instance, agrees with me most of the time in his book um, and argues uh, against, you know, the fact that I use the word agriculture. And, of course, I'm using it provocatively and it is an incitement um, to have a closer look at Australian history. But um, the, the reason... I think it's important for us to uh, look more forensically at Australian history and I, it doesn't worry me that, um, you know, about those, you know, the levels of, that historians use to uh, place people on that uh, lineal scale of development. It doesn't worry me uh, that I've upset people because Aboriginal people are still at the bottom of that scale. Now, if, if we could have a discussion in, in Parliament where we had a decent debate, you know, we could afford to be more nuanced. But when people laugh at Linda Burney in Parliament because she wants a gentler kind of uh, debate, um, our Parliament 
is never going to have that discussion. If, you know, as happened in the Northern Territory um, just recently, and I could name a dozen cases, unfortunately, um, where a young boy is shot eight times for looking aggressive. We, we don't have time to finesse. We don't have time to be patient. You know, the, the immediacy is now. And, you know, how many Australians have read those essays and documents and books um, that you're discussing, Tom? How many? Um, it's because it doesn't appear in our curriculum. And if our children don't read it at school, they'll probably never read it in the rest of their lives. Yes, um, I, I hear what you're saying, um, just in terms of how many. Well, the, the, people, the people I mentioned, you know, two of them were Boyer lectures, uh, you know, those uh, particularly in, the, in, in half a century ago, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, those Boyer lectures you know, went out to a large audience and were listened to, did have impact. Uh, a number of them, like, like Judith Wright, Henry Reynolds, um, Eric Rolls, uh, sold tens of thousands of copies of books. They were non-fiction bestsellers in their time, just as Dark Emu is in our time. Um, I don't think it's right to say that this uh, body of knowledge resided only in uh, the peripheries of, uh, of academic literature. It certainly grew there. Uh, mm -hmm. as many good ideas do, and then it sprouted into these uh, great um, uh, fruits that were available to all and that mm -hmm. did, did enter our, our, our polity, our political discussion. You know, in that same half century, we look at the advances we've made in terms of recognising it's not enough, but at least, you know, Aboriginal citizenship, land rights, getting mm -hmm. feet, on, feet on the ground again, our native title... Uh, Henry Reynolds' work leveraged into the Marbo judgment. You know, they, it's very easy to show the direct links between um, scholarship, which is sometimes seen to be, uh, you know, elite and, 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 and sort of peripheral, but to see it actually has impact. Peter Reid's work in terms of recognising the stolen generations, leading to the apology, setting up link-up, bringing families back together. Um, there are so many examples of scholars, historians, archaeologists, anthropologists. Peter Sutton, uh, the author of, of the main author of the book we've been talking about, was one of them, involved in 87 land rights cases of, uh, and, and representing in that book what he sees to be the knowledge of the old people, as he calls them, the WIC people that he worked with for decades. You know, these aren't uh, armchair theorists. Uh, mm. I'm talking about uh, people who, you know, are part of... They, they share the same sense of urgency... Mm. Bruce, and I think and, you're... And I love yeah. them all, Tom, yeah. I do. You know, every, every name you've mentioned, you know, every one of them I've read and I love them for their work, but Australia is moving at glacial speed in, in the middle of climate change, so in, instead of actually, you know, we're likely to end up as a puddle. You know, we don't have the time for a, a lot of luxury... My, my poor sister's been trying to wind us up for a little time now, and um, I'm, I'm sorry, my sis, but, you know, they, these... We've got to have this conversation, and Australia needs to move now, and um, 
And it's people like Tom with his argument, his fervent argument on, on behalf of those heroes who he mentioned that will make a change, but, you know, we can't, we can't go on like this forever. It's corrupting our government. I listened to those refugee fellas this morning um, talking about how horrible um, Australia treated, how horribly Australia treated them. And, you know, the way our country is formed, the things it believes, the thing that's in its constitution, that it gets said daily in its parliament, they are what the people become. And if we don't want to become that, we're going to have to do something about it. And unfortunately, as it is, writing in a literary magazine, and I've done it myself, um, isn't going to cut it. So I think we're inviting questions from the audience at this stage. We're not? <laughs> we're over. That's it. <laughs> okay, well, look, thank you so much, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.